This morning in the sermon, we'll be looking at how Christ transforms our relationships. I want to read, as we uh, look at Scripture, I want to read 1 Peter, starting uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Peter also addresses some of the same topics as Paul, but he comes at it from a, a slightly different angle. So we're going to read starting uh, 1 Peter 2, chapter 13. I'll be reading all the way to chapter 3, verse 7. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Amen. Let's pray for for God's help now to show us His truth and His Word. Uh, Lord, as we do come to hear from You through the book of Colossians, we pray that You would give us understanding of Your truth, that You would give us a love for Jesus Christ, that You would give us repentance for the ways that we have not lived in the... uh, lived in obedience to you, and we pray that you would give us growth and new obedience, a desire to serve you in all areas of our life because we are changed by Jesus Christ and his Spirit. We pray all of this in Jesus' name alone. Amen. This morning our sermon comes from Colossians chapter 3. 
Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In many ways, we're in the the nitty-gritty of the Christian life as we look at this passage together. Uh, If you've had a disagreement with your spouse, you're here. It feels like it's the second or third or tenth time that your child has disobeyed. That's here too. Or maybe dealing with that difficult person at work. All of these situations and more are found right here in our passage. What Paul is doing in these verses, he's he's taking one of the deepest truths of the gospel that you and I in our salvation by faith are united to Christ in his death. In his resurrection, in his reign and his return, he's taking that truth and he's applying it. He's applying it to the most basic human relationships that we have in marriage, in our family, and in our work. And he's doing this because our connection to Christ transforms every other relationship we have. But, you know, some of you might say as you heard those words, ah, But this part of the passage does not apply to me, right? I'm not married, or maybe I don't have kids, or maybe I'm not, I don't have a job right now. It's tempting to think, well, then maybe I don't have to listen to those parts of the sermon. But you do need to listen. You do need to listen. Let me encourage you, because each one of us is actually called to help one another in the calling that God has given us. So you can help others as you pray for them, And as you encourage them, as you see them in this passage of Scripture. So all of us need to listen to all of this passage to help every single one of us in this congregation. Now the main idea of of Paul's verses here is that our union with Christ transforms our relationships with each other. Our union with Christ, that relationship transforms all of our other relationships with each other. As I said, Paul focuses on three basic relationships, and that's what we're going to see. That our our union with Christ transforms our relationships in marriage. See that first? We'll see second, that it transforms our relationships in the family. And third, he transforms our relationships in our work. Paul is very balanced as he applies the gospel to these three relationships. In each case... He gives commands to the person who's in authority and also to the person who needs to follow. For instance, a husband and wife. 
Paul talks to both of them at the same time. And the two commands he gives, in each case, they really complement each other. They have to go together. So again, look at marriage. He commands submission and love. That's what makes a Christian marriage work, both sides of those things. It's easy to read this passage, though, and to say, well, I wish that in my work or in my marriage or in my family, we were all Christians and life was great. But that's actually why I read 1 Peter, because 1 Peter gives us a different angle on some of these same truths. And he says, regardless of how the other person responds, regardless of who that other person is, believer or unbeliever, we need to share, we need to show these same qualities to everyone in these three basic relationships we have. So let's look first with Paul about how our union with Christ actually transforms our relationships in marriage. We see that in verses 18 to 19. Now, what Paul is doing is he's going from the the closest, most intimate relationship we have, the relationship between a husband and wife, he's kind of going out to the family and then to work. But this is where he starts, at our closest relationship. He says, this relationship that you have with your spouse, if you are in Christ, this relationship is marked by both submission and love. Now, Paul speaks to wives first. He says, wives, submit to your husband's as is fitting in the Lord. Uh, I don't think submission is a popular idea in our culture right now. Um, Many different reasons for that. Some of it, we have to realize some of this is because women have been mistreated. And so often, biblical truth, like this very passage, has been wrongly used to justify really terrible, sinful behavior. But also... I think many in our culture don't like submission because there is sin that is fighting against God's order, the way God has made the world. And God has created an order in marriage. The wife willingly submits to the husband and the husband lovingly leads her. That's how it's been since Adam and Eve all the way until now. But God's order does not mean that a man is is better than his wife. In fact, God has blessed both equally in in so many ways. He created both men and women in His image. He saved both of us. He's given gifts to both. And in marriage, in a unique way, God has united man and woman together. They need one another in marriage. And yet, despite all those good things, all those things that make us, in some sense, equal, Paul can rightly say here that a wife ought to submit to her husband. There is that order that God has created. But what does that look like? What what does Christian submission in marriage look like? It is a wife willingly following her husband because it is fitting in the Lord. And we have to have both parts of that definition. We have to say that when a woman marries, she voluntarily, willingly submits to her husband. That's what happens when we're vowing those vows to one another. And she is submitting to her husband, not because he's always right. Okay? Husbands maybe need to hear that. I definitely do. Not because we're always right. Not because the husband is stronger and can make her submit. Or because that's the way things have always been that I should just submit to my husband. That's not why a wife should submit. 
No, she submits to her husband because she recognizes and rejoices in the order that Christ has created and also restored in our salvation. Really, what Paul is saying here is that a wife submits to her husband because she submits to Christ, her Lord. So what does that look like in practice? Well, it means in part that a wife submits to her husband's leadership and decisions, right? A wife has every right, listen carefully, a a wife has every right to be part of the discussion before a decision is made, right? God has given our wives great wisdom and experience. Again, I'm a living example of that. I need my wife's input in my decisions. So submission does not mean a silent wife. Sometimes we we can view that as what's going on. That's not true. But even if a wife does disagree with her husband, she willingly follows what he has decided, as hard as that might be sometimes. And it is hard. She may actually know that it won't work. Uh, She may continue to disagree, but she is willingly submitting because she is submitting actually to Christ. And because a, a wife submits to Christ, this is really important, a wife is submitting to Christ first and foremost, and her husband second. And because of that order, there are limits to what a husband can say and do. There are limits to the submission of a wife. She cannot submit to a decision that would make her sin. It's just a simple example, but it's very important to realize that she cannot submit to sin. So wives are meant to submit to their husbands, and they're meant to be doing that because they submit to Christ. But Paul also speaks directly to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We see in the parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5 that the husband should love his wife like Christ loved the church. That is the high calling, the high standard of our love as husbands. We need to love with a sacrificial love that is for her good in all circumstances. Now that kind of love, that kind of love is so much more than what we see, say, in the movies, right? No, this is a persevering love. It's not just an emotion that comes and goes. It's a commitment. It is a commitment through the many changing circumstances of our lives. Okay, for those of us who are married, think about the ups and downs in your life together. Think about how many different things have changed since you've gotten married. Our love should actually be constant and even deepening through those experiences with one another. And that kind of love that Paul is describing here is a commitment to our wives' good, even when that is costly to us. And love is costly. It has to be. Think about what Christ has done for you. Christ's love for his Father and for you and I led him to his death on the cross. That's the kind of sacrificial love that we are called to as well. Any marriage, any marriage is going to run into difficulties when the husband loves himself more than he loves his wife. You know, when it becomes my way, my needs, my plans, my hobbies, rather than seeking the spiritual physical, emotional, and mental good of my wife, there's going to be problems. There has to be because that's sin. 
And Paul's command here for husbands to love their wives really in everything is joined to that command. He says, do not be harsh with them. It can be tempting as a husband to be harsh. It can be tempting to speak or act harshly. We can think, man, she just doesn't get it. I can't believe she did that again. Doesn't she know better? But you know what? Already right there in your own thoughts and in your own heart, you are displaying a harsh attitude. And you, if you find yourself ever thinking something like that, um, it'll come out. It will come out in your words and actions to your wife. If we are harsh, it means that we are not living with our wives in an understanding way. That's how Peter phrases it in 1 Peter 3. We just read, to live, in, live with your wife in an understanding way, to show honor to them, but instead we can show harshness. Now, as, as Paul is writing about both the wife's submission and the husband's love, he's really focused on our hearts. That's where this is going on, because Christ-shaped hearts will lead to Christ-shaped actions. One of the the real joys of marriage is that both the husband and the wife, in a unique way, reflect Christ and are shaped by Christ. I remember when we were getting married, or before we were getting married in our premarital counseling, our pastor told us that Christ submitted and loved. He did both of the things that we are called to in marriage. And that's how we were going to be able to do that as well. Christ in his humanity perfectly submitted himself to his Father's will. Think about that. That's what Christ was doing every moment of his life, was submitting to his Father. And as we've already seen, he also loved. He loved his people sacrificially. He gave his own life for us. So because we're in Christ and being made to be more like Christ in those ways, Christ the one who submitted, Christ the one who loved and died, that means that husbands and wives are conformed to Christ in their unique callings to submit and to love. Christ is making us like he already is. But that's not the only place that we're changed in our relationships. We see second in verses 20 to 21 that being in Christ transforms our relationships in the family. Again, it's important to read both sides of Paul's command to get the full picture. He says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Then fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Paul's point is that Christ transforms the daily interactions in our families. I want to talk to the children maybe directly now. Um, Listen up, this is, this is what God is saying to you. He says, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. God tells you that he is pleased. He loves it when you obey your parents in everything. Pleasing the Lord is the best thing that any person can do. I know it can be very hard to obey. Sometimes it feels like your parents are telling you to do lots of different things. Or maybe sometimes you just don't feel like obeying, right? You'd rather go read or play or do something else. But God gave you parents. He lovingly gave you parents to take care of you and to teach you. And you need to obey them because you obey God. And God actually promises that he's going to bless you. He's going to give you a good thing. Think about the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. 
I know it's hard as a child to obey. And that's where you can learn to pray. You can learn to pray for God's help to obey your promises, to obey your parents, because he promises he will help you to do the right thing that pleases him. But you know, this command is not just for the children. It's for us as parents too. And I'm talking directly to those of us, most directly to those of us who have young children at home. Uh, We should lovingly teach our children to obey us in everything. Not saying we're dictators, we're not on some sort of power trip, but God has called us to raise our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And God himself is going to hold us responsible. Um, We are blessed in this church that we are not alone as young parents, that we have godly older parents here who have gone through what we're going through now. And I would encourage all of us to go and talk to them, get advice, get encouragement, get help when you need it. Um, And best of all, though, don't just turn to others, turn to God, because God is gracious with us. He is so gracious to us as parents. And that's what we need most as we raise our children. We need God's grace. We need God's grace for the many times that we fail as parents. We do. We sin. We need God's grace then. And we need God's grace to show through as we train our children. Because our children need to see Christ and his work in us. God's grace is really what what drives Paul's command in verse 21. As he's talking to fathers in particular, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. What, what Paul is saying is he's commanding fathers to show that grace to their children. Paul focuses, I guess you could say, on the negative. He says, don't provoke your children. Don't, don't antagonize your children. Do not do something that pushes your children toward anger. You know, we still need to discipline our children. And they might not like that. But there are so many ways that we can actually provoke our children that will lead them to be discouraged in their obedience to us. I thought of a few this week. We can go wrong when we make too many rules. We are not called by God to micromanage our children. And really, if there are rules about everything, then they are constantly in danger of breaking them, and that is stressful for them. No, we can also make rules that are just too hard, that they're never going to be able to do. We need to make rules that children can actually keep. You know, so what you expect from a three-year-old is different from a seven-year-old or or a 15-year-old, right? You know, maybe for the three-year-old, you clean up 10 toys. Maybe for a seven-year-old, clean up this room. Maybe for an older teenager, clean up the bathroom every Saturday. You know, I'm just saying that we need different expectations for different stages of life. But also, we can go wrong when we're inconsistent. This can be the most frustrating thing for kids because they don't know what to expect. You know, one day you enforce a rule and the next day you just let it slide. You know, we need to discipline ourselves before we can ever discipline our children. And finally, we can show too little grace, love, and forgiveness as we raise our children. You know, God forgives our sins. He forgives all of our sins. And even when he disciplines us, he disciplines us as our loving heavenly father we need to be more and more like god himself in our care for our children and because we are being made like him we can truly forgive them we can really be gracious to them we can really love them when we discipline our children do we tell them that we forgive them and love them do we tell them that and show it to them and really mean that in our own hearts first You know, all of these things that Paul is talking about, he has the heart 
in view. You know, maybe you've met a strong-willed parent. Strong-willed parents can make their children obey, okay? But that's not what God wants. We're not forcing our children into obedience. No, when Paul's talking about Christian families here, lives that are transformed by the gospel as kids or as parents, if we are in Christ, then those relationships should be marked by obedient hearts and gracious, loving commands. Paul then, in these final verses here, kind of zooms out one more layer to look at our relationships in our work. And he shows us that Christ transforms those relationships as well. So what we see third and finally in verses 22 over in a chapter 4-1. Paul has the most, actually, to say about how our relationship with work changes, or our relationship in Christ changes our relationships in our work. These verses apply to us today, even though we're not bond servants, we're not slaves, like what Paul is talking about here. We don't have masters, but these relationships that Paul describes are centered on work. And if you're an employee or an employer, if you have people under you, then these verses apply to you. It's a, it's a similar dynamic today. As Paul opens here, he commands complete obedience that comes from a heart that fears the Lord. He says, bond servants, obey in everything. Notice that, obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. He's saying we obey our bosses because we fear the Lord. That's the basic point here. It's so tempting, though, to obey when people are watching, right? That's the eye service that Paul describes, to look good, to please the boss. But Paul calls each one of us to a deeper kind of obedience, which actually comes from our heart. You know, our desire to obey should come whether anyone sees us or not. I remember um, very clearly one of, my, one of my shift managers at a job because almost without fail, he would rush over to us in the factory. He'd rush over us and say, look busy, the supervisor's coming. That's exactly the wrong attitude to have. He only wanted us to work hard when the boss was looking over his shoulder. But when no one is watching you work, do you work just as hard as if your boss were looking over your shoulder? See, the reality is that we do this because we fear the Lord. We are not just fearing and honoring and serving our our employers, our bosses. We are fearing the Lord. We know that our true master, Jesus Christ, is the one who's always watching us. And we want to serve him. This is actually what Paul draws out even more clearly in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. When Paul says, whatever you do, that actually tells you that the most boring part of your job or the most frustrating part of your job is still done for the Lord. And we want to serve the Lord. We want to do what is pleasing to Him. But Paul also points us forward to the future reward that's coming. Notice what he says. He says, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance As your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Now, I know that the idea of Jesus giving us a reward for the ways we've worked for him may seem surprising, 
right? If, if everything about our salvation is from grace, then, then how do we earn a reward? Those things don't seem to go together. But actually, a future reward for obedience is, is a consistent theme in Scripture. I'm just going to give you two examples. Paul says in 2 Timothy, he's describing the crown of righteousness. And this is what he says. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. Or Paul again in 1 Corinthians 3.14 He's talking about people working for the Lord. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation of Christ survives God's judgment, he will receive a reward. Okay, it's still a gracious reward because even our best works are still mixed up with sin. And any good that we do is actually coming from God. But God really does reward obedience. You know, when God... When you go to be in God's presence and you hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, those words really mean something. God values and rewards our obedience. And that eternal perspective means that whatever promotions or whatever perks or whatever paychecks we get in this life for our hard work, they're good, but they really pale in comparison to how God will reward that same work we do in the Lord. But just as surely as there's a reward for working heartily for the Lord, there's also a judgment. And Paul includes that in verse 25. He says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. What's really amazing here is that Paul is talking about Christian bondservants, Christian employees here, God will judge us for our work as well. Let's go back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 for a minute. We looked at the reward there, but in the very next verse, 3.15, Paul talks about a judgment. He says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The, The judgment that Paul is describing here does not keep us out of heaven, right? We are saved by Christ. Our future is secure. And yet, Scripture clearly indicates that what we do now as Christians matter. And even our sins, which are covered by Christ's blood, will still be exposed and judged by God. I'll admit, I don't know what that's going to look like. And I think Scripture, in some ways, doesn't give us any more details. doesn't focus on that. But Paul still points us there. He points us to that judgment, whatever it will look like. And he says, this should motivate us to work heartily for the Lord now. Paul's Paul's point here is that every aspect of our work, everything that we do, every relationship that we have at work is transformed by our relationship with Christ because when we are connected to Christ, we are serving him in everything that we do. Remember what he said in verse 17? Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Christ of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's what Paul is showing in practice here. Then our obedience, our obedience to our employers, is part of our obedience to Christ. It flows from a heart that has been changed by Christ. Now, Paul actually turns to address masters next, to employers, people that have others under them. He says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Again, if you have authority over people at work, 
one person, ten people, however many it is, this verse applies to you. Okay? You must treat those under you justly and fairly. You need to treat them as people made in God's image. Give them clear expectations. Be even-handed with everyone, whether you like them or not. Expect quality work from them, but also don't work them too hard. And always ask, am I helping them to obey Christ and the way that I'm treating them? You know, that question that you need to ask yourself is even true if they aren't believers. Am I helping them to obey Christ in the way that I'm treating them? And Paul says, you're supposed to be doing these things. You're supposed to be caring for the people that God has put under your care because you serve Jesus, your heavenly master. It is Christ, your master, who lays out how you treat others. Okay, it's not deadlines. It's not office culture. It's nothing else that should affect how you treat people under you. It is Christ. Think about how Christ treats you and the mercy and grace he shows to you, and you go and show that to others. That is a high calling. Actually, every relationship described here is a high calling. These are our heavenly calling. These are the very practical applications of being united to Christ. Remember, Paul has just, in the previous verses, talked about what it means to be a new man, where we are connected together in Christ. This is what it looks like in our everyday relationships. And these things should characterize us as Christians, not because we call ourselves Christians. These things should be true of us, not just because we go to church. This is not a be a good person passage, but we can be tempted to think that way. No, these things can and should characterize us because true believers are connected to Christ and he will be making these things true of us more and more. As we close, I want to give a brief challenge and a brief encouragement to each one of us. My challenge is repentance. We've all fallen short in these areas, and we know it. We have sinned in these relationships. And as God shows you those sins, repent. God is a gracious God. He is always forgiving us. Ask for forgiveness from Him, and ask for forgiveness from the people in these relationships that you have sinned against. And work in his power now to obey and love and submit and care for one another. But that really leads me to the encouragement here. Because God is the one who's at work. He is the one at work in these relationships. He's at work in our lives. He is the one who's going to make us worthy of his calling. And as surely, as surely as God has brought us to Christ in faith, in salvation, so surely will God continue to conform us to Christ day by day in these relationships and all the areas of our life. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we need to hear these words. We need to know what you've called us to be. And we need to know the grace and the power that you give us to be those very things, to be those people who are changed because we're connected to Christ. We thank you, Lord, that in these relationships, in our marriages, in our families, in our work, and actually in all areas of our life, Lord, that you will make us like Christ. 
that we'll be able to show the love of Christ to others, to care for one another, uh, Lord, to obey one another, to submit. We thank you that you can help us to do these things. And Lord, we pray that this more and more would characterize us. We pray that we would have this kind of heart that you yourself have toward us and that you have towards your Father. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.